Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Great. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon and happy to see more and more people coming in and filling up the room. So welcome as you as you come in and welcome to LSE for this public event. My name is Austin Ziderman. I'm Associate Professor of Geography here at LSE, and I'm extremely pleased to be welcoming you all to uh, our today's event, our book launch and celebration uh, for Kasha Papraki and her wonderful uh, book. So I will welcome Kasha Papraki and our discussants, Alpa Shah and Nikhil Anand, um, and our audience to all of you. Welcome to the Shaw Library and welcome to this event. Kasha is Associate Professor in Environment in the Department of Geography and Environment at LSE. She's also the founder and coordinator of the Social Life of Climate Change Initiative at LSE, and her work addresses issues within and between political economy of development, political ecology, social movements, and agrarian change. Alpa Shah is Professor of Anthropology at LSE. Alpa is also a faculty associate of LSE's International Inequalities Institute, where she leads the research theme on global economies of care. And among many other areas of expertise, her work centers on agrarian transitions and labor, emancipatory politics, as well as indigenous and grassroots environmental practices and movements. Nikhil Anand is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. Nikhil is also director of the Penn Enviro Lab, which supports innovative transdisciplinary thinking on society-environment relations. And like Alpa, Nikhil brings a wealth of experience and themes central to the book, such as the political ecologies of climate change, the social life of water and water infrastructure, and future imaginaries for inhabiting wet terrain. Now today, Alpa and Nikhil are joining to discuss and celebrate Kasha's new book, Threatening Dystopias, The Global Politics of Climate Change Adaptation in Bangladesh, published in 2021 by Cornell University Press. Now, I know I'm only the chair and <laughs> not a discussant, but I do feel compelled to say a thing or two about the book. First of all, that I have tremendous admiration for both the book and the author of this book. The clarity of thought and language, the boldness in both theory and praxis, and the expansiveness of the political imagination on display here are truly remarkable and all too rare. Now, this book is not only a tremendous scholarly achievement, but also a desperately needed personal, political, and intellectual meditation on the predicament of how to engage critically, carefully, and creatively with the climate-altered world that we now all inhabit. Now, I have many more things to say about the book, but I'm going to save those uh, for a later time. The format will be somewhat atypical. We were kind of creative with how to make an engaging and interesting format for, for today's discussion. So first we'll have an open discussion um, between Kasha and Alpa in which they will draw out some of the book's main themes. We'll then invite Nikhil to offer his comments on the book and to pick up on some of the themes discussed uh, and raised in the previous conversation. And then we'll turn back to Kasha, who will give us a brief response. We'll then have a good amount of time for questions and discussion with all of you. And the floor will be open. I'll let you know when we're at that moment. And uh, after the event, you're more than welcome. We hope you'll join us for a reception right here in the Shaw Library, uh, where copies of the book will be on sale. 
Now, for those Twitter users out there, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE climate. And this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast uh, as long as it fully functions technically. So with that said, I'm delighted to now hand things over to Kasha and Alpha. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Austin. It's uh, such a pleasure, such an honor to be here uh, today. It's a fantastic book. I suggest you all read it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, um, it's really nice also to do an event with geography, you know, once a geographer, always a geographer, um, although I'm in anthropology now. Um, but yeah, I think uh, what I wanted to do is maybe start us off by highlighting what I think are some of the important issues that um, Kasha raises in her book, uh, and then maybe have a few questions to you, um, and we can take the conversation from there, right? Excellent. Excellent. Um, so yeah, what should lie at the heart of our attempts to address the threat of climate change? What should be at the heart of movements, policies and politics of climate justice? These are some of the most pressing questions of our time. They're also some of the most contentious issues of our time. And I think Kasha's important new book lays bare what is at stake for some of the poorest people in the world People in Bangladesh, a country ranked among the top 10 countries most vulnerable to climate, climate devastation, a country from which it is said that one in every seven people will be displaced by climate change by 2020, projected to result in the largest mass migration in human history. The places and people that Kasha worked most closely with strike me as being what Naomi Klein chillingly calls sacrifice zones, places most depredated, poor places, out of the way places, places where residents lack political power, usually have, have to do with some combination of race, language and class. In the construction of Bangladesh as a climate dystopia, Kasha shows how shrimp cultivation for export, especially since the mid 80s, has been promoted by development agencies as a strategy for adapting to climate change. USAID, World Bank, uh, Asian Development Bank, FAO, UNDP, I mean, they're all, everybody's involved. And who could dis disagree with climate adaptation strategies, right? The intentions are often very well-meaning. They're discussed in hotel conference rooms across the world, from Kulna, where Kasha was, to Bonn, where Kasha also was. Um, but what Kasha also very powerfully shows us is that there can be a very dark side to these climate, climate adaptation strategies. In Bangladesh, Shrimp cultivation as a climate adaptation strategy for the country has in fact allowed some very, very dystopic changes. It's allowed for the consolidation of power in villages for wealthy elite outsiders and certain landed families who control shrimp production. It's allowed for the dispossession of most local people, small farmers to sharecroppers from access to multiple common food sources and waterways, which long provided livelihoods for locals. Climate adaptation strategies in the form of shrimp farming are therefore ironically resulting in a serious undermining of food and water security. At the same time, there is a destruction of local opportunities for employment. 
Shrimp farming is not as labor intensive as the previous rice cultivation requires 10% of the, of, of the labor that rice does. There's also very wide scale, hard to reverse ecological poisoning caused by the shrimp farms, soil salinity, which makes water undrinkable, kills all the vegetation, fruit bearing trees. We are here um, also, hopefully Kasha can show some pictures on the fringes of what was or what is um, some of the most biodiverse mangrove forests in the world. In fact, Kulna is historically part of the Sundarbans, the world's largest mangrove forest and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I realized recently at Guy Standing's um, book launch on the ocean, ocean, on the ocean that 80% of all fish in the sea depend on these mangrove swamps. I don't think Kasha uses this term, but shrimp aquaculture is poisonous at every level from the impact of, from its impact on the human body to who, human bodies who labor in the farms to those who live around them to the wider environment. It's no surprise that they have led to high, these farms have led to high rates of migration outside the area. Kasha is so impressive. She connects with people from the region who are now working as construction labor in Calcutta to find out what's happened to them. But all is not doom um, in Kulna where Kasha spends much of her time. Uh, there's a local social movement of landless people Nijera Kori, uh, we do it ourselves. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah. Um, and they've been fighting for the rights of local people. Interestingly, though, they completely uh, remove themselves from the language of climate justice and are instead framing their concerns in terms of agrarian justice and the fight to access common land where they can collectively cultivate rice. In that sense, environmental activism for them is one part of a broader vision of social justice, can't be separated from it. And Kasha spends a lot of time with this movement and it's through her long-term involvement with this movement that she's able to understand exactly what is happening at the village level in terms of the wider political economy of shrimp farms, how shrimp farming enters the historical agrarian relations of the area, and also what alternative food uh, what alternative futures local people are fighting for. This is for me a must read for all those concerns concerned with questions of climate justice. It was actually, actually very reminiscent uh, of James Ferguson's 1990s classic anti-politics machine about the Canadian um, funded Thabaseka development project in Lesotho, mm -hmm. through which he showed how development projects completely misread what local people in fact need, resulting in negative unintended consequences for locals, and through which the development apparatus extends colonial rule after independence. And I can't help thinking actually that we're seeing an, that process again uh, through climate adaptation strategies. And this is actually what the book presents us. And I'd be really keen also to know from Nikhil and, and, and Austin what they think about these connections with that landmark book of Jim, Jim Ferguson's, um, particularly because you're so close with, you know, Jim's close to Jim's work and, and that book in particular. Um, so Kasha, 30 years later, is it, is it the case that climate adaptation has become the new anti-politics machine of our time, depoliticizing and bureaucratizing power? 
The point is that you can't analyze the impact of interventions to mitigate climate change without situating them in locally grounded analysis of production relations, who has the power to determine them, a historically situated analysis of political economy, the muck of the past, or what Marx called the muck of the ages, if you will. Could you perhaps maybe speak a little bit about how you came to work on these climate adaptation strategies in Bangladesh, shrimp cultivation in particular as a window to explore that? And maybe if you have a map and some photos and you could maybe share with us yeah, yeah. how you came to work on this. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to share about it. And um, before I do, I just wanna say thank you so much to all three of you for um, joining me for this discussion. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you, um, especially because I have learned so much from all three of your work and um, I, your, your, your work really inspires me. Um, and I also want to say briefly, I mean, thank you to all of you for being here, but also um, David Lewis and Nyla Kabir and Claire Mercer are three people who I'm really honored to call colleagues and who all read the entire manuscript before um, it went to press and gave me sometimes very, very difficult feedback <laughs> that really improved it tremendously. So I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you. Um, and yeah, thank you for these like, extremely generous comments. Um, I, I'm very happy to talk about how I came to the project and to share a, a little bit and some pictures that I have about um, of some pictures of Kulna. Um, I guess first I will... Um, I'll just show a map. Um, this is Bangladesh, which um, if you're not familiar with South Asia is sort of in the armpit of India. Um, the uh, region, the Southwestern coastal region and specifically the district of Kulna is um, the area that I've been working for the last 10 years or so. And um, these three islands specifically are areas where I, um, have concentrated my ethnographic research. And as you can see, this, this region, which borders the Shunderban forest, is basically sort of a, a network of small islands at the base of this major river delta. And so that ecology really sort of shapes the way that production happens there. And um, I was first sort of brought to this region um, in, in response to your question because I, um, I had been working for several years before I started my PhD with this social movement, Nijar Akhori, which is Bangladesh's largest landless peasant movement. And I was sort of casting about for a PhD project and they were really concerned with shrimp aquaculture and had asked me to go there and look at it. And so um, of course I, I did that. So it started as essentially like a agrarian political economy of shrimp cultivation, which um, I like to think it still is, but it sort of took on this um, broader life of its own. Um, because so so this so this is a these are shrimp ponds. This is what the shrimp landscape looks like. This is um, a, a image from Polder Twenty Three, which is one of the um, areas where I did this research, and you can sort of see that um, in this region. All of the trees have died. Basically, nothing else grows but shrimp. Um, and the sort of former agrarian um, livelihoods and the sort of lifestyle of living in a village, um, the work of you know the, the labor of agrarian production has been completely subsumed by 
um, by this shrimp cultivation. And so you can sort of see in this picture, um, there's like a kind of scum that collects on the surfaces of the shrimp ponds and the primary labor opportunities that are available now after this transition from rice farming to shrimp cultivation is essentially um, like wading through this scum and piling it up into these little piles that you see in this picture here. So um, it's, it's not a nice kind of work to do. And it's not something that um, the villagers who I was really fortunate to spend time with um, are happy about for a whole variety of reasons. Um, so I, I might talk a little bit about that more in a minute, but what came next was I was trying to understand, so if this is what this looks like and um, the people who live in these landscapes are so unhappy with it, then why are development agencies continuing to um, promote shrimp aquaculture? And um, so I started sort of going around to uh, the offices of development agencies and just asking them about, you know, what, what's the logic behind shrimp? Why are you still promoting it? They've been doing this sort of since the 1980s, promoting commercial shrimp aquaculture. Um, why is this the strategy of choice um, if it has these impacts that we see? And the thing that I started hearing over and over was um, that there is no option for this coastal region um, besides shrimp aquaculture because of climate change. And, um, so there's a lot of really sort of catastrophic rhetoric about Bangladesh going underwater and about um, these this sort of um, crisis of agrarian production that um, is inescapable and unavoidable because of climate change. And so um, actually when I, the month that I started this uh, field work in 2014, the New York Times had a cover story about uh, climate change and climate crisis in Bangladesh that had images just like this one of sort of the, the whole coastal landscape going underwater. And the idea there is sort of, um, you know, sea level rise is threatening this low lying region and that makes it inevitable. But as I sort of, so um, I had the luxury of, of uh, over two years to do this field work. So I was able to sort of cast about and talk to a lot of people like, well, is that true? And what about that? And why is that? And what I found is that like just across the river from these um, villages that I just showed you, there are agrarian communities that are still producing rice in villages just like this one. This is literally just across the river from um, the the places where you know all the trees have died and nothing else grows. This is Polder 22, and um, that sort of challenges this idea that nothing else can grow in this region due to climate change. So what's happening, and why is it that um, there are these two really different experiences with agrarian production today and the sort of possibilities of life in the time of climate change? And um, the more I talk to scientists, sort of natural scientists, not social scientists like myself, um, I found out from, from natural scientists that actually these predictions that Bangladesh is inevitably going underwater, like you saw in, in the map before, um, 
is that's really not borne out by the sort of natural science of um, projecting what's going to happen due to climate change in this region. So um, this is a map that was produced by um, a sort of eminent, um, uh, unfortunately late um, geographer, Hugh Brammer, a, a British scientist who um, sort of demonstrated that actually climate change is going to cause Bangladesh to gain more land mass than it is going to lose. And um, you can see in the map here, the, the, the red area is land that's going to accrete and the blue area is land that's going to erode. So, um, so then what's going on if we're seeing this really sort of dramatic picture of sea level rise? And what I found, um, and this, this is actually something that I, I was surprised to find is like sort of common knowledge of physical geographers of this region, is that the um, sea level rise there is mostly due to this um, major system of embankments that was built in the 1960s um, through like US engineering and um, Dutch engineering expertise and sort of US um, development finance. So the, the, these, this major system of embankments was built all across the coastal region. And it essentially, what it did is it, they call them polders, which is um, after the sort of Dutch word for a low lying island surrounded by a protective dike. This polder system cut off the entire estuary and it um, prevented the land from being continually built up um, by the sediments that come down through the river Delta. And that means that the land is actually sinking instead of, um, instead of sort of rising, which is what had happened before when the sort of natural estuary was there. And so when we talk about um, sea level rise, what we think of usually is this, what's happening here in the, in the um, images on the left, which is like the, the seas going up, right? Um, and that's what happens through uh, climate change. But what's happening in this region is relative sea level rise, which is the land is actually sinking. And so sea level rise is the result of the land going down um, more than it is the result of the sea going up. Um, this uh, took me a long time to <laughs> sort of sort out the, the details of how this, the sort of natural science is understanding what's happening and is projecting what's gonna happen in the future. I think it's really important to understand it because it indicates that um, the way that we talk about what is happening to this region, the way we talk about climate change and the sort of inevitability of climate crisis really shapes the way that we understand and think about and plan for what to do for the future in the face of climate change. And so, um, you know, development agencies looking at this region and seeing um, the impacts of some kind of sea level rise, talking about it um, in these really catastrophic terms leads to ideas about um, the need for these really dramatic changes like, um, you know, the introduction and promotion of shrimp aquaculture. Whereas if we understand that it's not inevitable, um, then we might open ourselves up to different kinds of um, ways of thinking about the future and specifically ways of thinking about um, strategies that local communities have for um, addressing um, and sort of pursuing these alternative futures. 
Um, and as I sort of tried to understand what that, like where these ideas came from, I realized they had a very long history actually dating to the colonial period when um, these embankments started to be built and the, the region was started to be constructed in the colonial period um, as a kind of region for managing intensively in order to basically to um, facilitate uh, smoother shipping routes because the Schinderbonds were sort of the primary uh, pathway to Kolkata, which was the, the capital of, of the British Raj. And so I realized that this, these sort of catastrophic ways of thinking about this region as one that needed to be intensively engineered and managed to promote extraction um, are, are very old ideas that um, date to the colonial period. And, and so I think it's really important to understand those connections in order to understand you know, what we're up against in thinking outside of them. Um, Today, the region really, as I said, continues to be um, managed quite intensively by foreign aid agencies. And um, this is a map of the polders that um, was shared with me by a World Bank consultant who, um, th this was just one, a particular map from one of their reports. Um, but he said, you know, we have maps like this in every version of every report that we publish about this region. And it essentially indicates how the region is divided up to be managed by various aid agencies through different sort of visions of um, landscape engineering and sort of the, the management of production relations. So the, the polders um, in green here say, you probably can't see in the bottom key, but they say available for blue gold, which is like this new Dutch project. Um, so, you know, these ideas also really draw on these tropes of inevitable crisis and um, they respond to them with a variety of largely market-based development solutions. Um, and they continue to have really, really catastrophic impacts in the region, um, which, I, yeah, I could just talk about forever. So <laughs> in the book, I spend a lot of time kind of unpacking what this means for agrarian communities, um, both through shrimp and through sort of other kinds of development interventions that draw on these same tropes of inevitable crisis. Um, and then also how these agrarian communities have really different visions for the future um, that I think demand a lot more attention. Can I can I can I ask you yes, about please. about um, about the about the aid agencies? Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I am really struck by the comparison with Jim Fergus's anti-politics machine, but I was I, I wondered whether things have changed uh, in relation to how this all operates uh, in this world of financialization. Because uh, I was at, um, uh, I, you know, as I mentioned Guy Standing's book, uh, The Ocean, which has just come out. And one of the points he makes, makes in that is that one of the most four major scams of the, around, around the ocean and uh, the privatization of the oceans mm -hmm. is, um, basically aquaculture, mm. of which obviously shrimp farming is one, aquaculture in wetlands, in mangrove areas. Mm -hmm. And um, what he charts is uh, alongside the development agencies or what's behind them is also this, fin this the financial sector is private equity firms. You know, he basically draws a list of, um, yeah, people who are, who are 
So there's a whole new kind of financialization that is leading to a global trade in shrimp, which is, you know, the World Bank and um, the development agency has just kind of co-opted in an arm of that now. And in a sense, that seems quite quite different to, you know, what was happening 30 years ago. And I was wondering whether you had any insight into those kind of global processes that are driving what's happening um, to shrimp shrimp cultivation here. Yeah, that's such a good question and um, one that absolutely I think has relevance to what's happening in Bangladesh today and one that that you know farmers and shrimp farmers in Bangladesh could talk about much more articulately than me actually they will um, like you know just sitting at a tea stall in Kulna um, they have these really clearly um, sort of refined ideas about um, what the price of shrimp is that they are being paid for the shrimp that they're producing, what the um, price is for it being traded on you know, global markets at any given day and how that really shapes these landscapes in these devastating ways. Um, I think that what is happening in this region um, to make this sort of especially catastrophic is that um, in addition to the sort of um, global trade in shrimp, which has um, caused, you know, a lot of interest and speculation in shrimp in this region, there also is a lot of climate finance. And um, climate finance, a lot of people think is like aid, but actually it's mostly loans. (laughs) Um, So the government of Bangladesh gets a lot of loans to Um, promote these projects, which combine to sort of artificially prop up an industry that isn't necessarily financially viable. Um, But I I think that what makes this, um, and yeah, again, I would be really interested to hear what um, Austin and Nikhil think about this comparison you're drawing with the anti-politics machine, I think that it's really different from um, development aid 30 years ago because um, the kinds of both demands and commitments of the international community to addressing development challenges in relation to climate change are really different than they were in the 80s. Um, And this is something that, that sort of climate adaptation proponents and practitioners in Bangladesh have said to me before is, you know, I, I, I was once having a conversation with this um, sort of a leader in the climate policy sector in Bangladesh. And I said, you know, you talk a lot about um, all of these impacts of climate change in the coastal region, um, but you and I both know that um, it's not, climate change as much as it is this sort of long history of um, development and dispossession dating to the colonial period that causes these problems. And, you know, don't you think maybe Bangladesh is owed reparations for like colonialism more than it is reparations for climate change or the sort of projected impacts of climate change? And he was like, well, yes, (laughs) but first of all, we're not going to win that fight in global climate negotiations. Fair enough. Um, the COP system is not set up for like colonial reparations. But also, um, 
he said, you know, we have these treaties that suggest that um, we are owed these reparations in a way that we were never owed them before. Like development aid was always um, something given like theoretically out of the kindness of the hearts of the global North, um, even though it was sort of a system developed in the aftermath of uh, decolonization. And there was this sense that it, that, um, that it, that it was owed. And so I think, and he was like, so now we, um, we are owed this aid through um, these global treaties in a way that we never were before. And once we get it, we can do whatever we want with it. And in my experience, what they are doing with it is essentially the same as what was being done before, like very, very similar to, you know, what Jim Ferguson was seeing in Lesotho, but um, it doesn't have to be that way. And um, I think that there is potential for thinking about that, um, those commitments and those obligations um, that is, um, you know, demands that we think differently than, um, than we were thinking when Jim Ferguson wrote the anti-politic machine. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, but I, like I said, I would be really interested in hearing what you guys think about that. Well, I could come in just briefly on that because I did think that's an interesting comparison. And I think in some ways um, I read the book as a, as a sort of jump ahead from that, like a building on that, obviously, and aware of those contributions, but really taking it into, you know, the sort of 21st century in a way, both in terms of the kinds of transformations of the development world, as you've already described, but also on a more sort of theoretical level, I suppose, um, the ways in which there's a lot more politics here and a lot less machine, I think. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of dynamism and a lot of possibility of change and of, um, you know, possibilities for imagining alternative futures, I think. And that's something that, you know, may have come out in, in later work if we're thinking about, you know, that reference point um, of the author of Anti-Politics Machine. But here, Kasha is really, I think, putting that in such kind of vibrant and vivid detail of the ways in which, yes, there is a really, you know, strong technical machine going on here um, at the level of power, but at the same time, there's so much else going on there. And then, but that, that right, seems quite right, unique right. to me. Yeah, I think that's really important because, because of the way you enter the project, you know, so in contrast to, to the Ferguson book, what you're really focusing on is actually a landless people's movement to reclaim the land, you know? So there's so much hope um, here as well, you know, and there's visions of the future, of possibilities of having alternatives, which are not this, you know? And it'd be really great, maybe um, if you could tell, tell us a little bit about Nigeria Kori and their project and their visions and what they were doing in, Polder 2022, you know, which is yeah. so actually, yeah, so enlightening and visionary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, happily. I have some pictures of 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 that too, which I um would love to share. Oh, this is just one more sort of image from um, a development agency with saying livelihood migration is a tool for climate change adaptation. But more importantly, Nijer Kori. Um, so. Yeah, in the 80s when, um, when shrimp aquaculture started being promoted, um, this movement really rose up against it and it's been galvanized sort of around memorializing this 
a woman who was martyred. Um, she was like murdered by people who wanted to grab land in her um, in her village to start a shrimp farming. Her name is Kurunamoyi Sardar, and this is a, a sort of a monument to her where she was murdered. And um, Kurunamoyi's martyrdom um, has, is like continually celebrated every year by Nijirakori. So this is a Kurunamoyi day in 20, maybe 2014, 2015. Um, and what that sort of the social movement that's risen up around her does is um, it allows for not only resisting these um, sort of incursions by shrimp aquaculturalists, but also to think about other sort of um, ways of managing agrarian production so that it can be more equitable. Because it, it is also true that um, it's not like before shrimp, this was this like radically egalitarian agrarian landscape. So they do things like um, they uh, create uh, farming cooperatives so that um, landless laborers can access common lands. It, it, um, the, the Bangladeshi constitution allows for um, the distribution of common lands to landless laborers and um, that like sort of radical opportunity for land redistribution was never fully realized, but um, it's available to people to sort of access as um, a key strategy in um, like reclaiming land and resources. And so that's something that they do. They also um, have seed banks where they, um, collect indigenous seed varieties that are um, like naturally adapted to growing in the context of um, like rising sea levels and floods and also um, increasing salinity. And so they're sort of like reclaiming um, these agrarian pasts and also like pointing to new opportunities for agrarian futures. So they organize around gender equality, against um, domestic violence. Um, they organize against um, uh, Islamic fundamentalism. So all of these, and, and sort of communal violence. So all of these different ways of imagining more egalitarian um, agrarian futures are embedded in the ways that they are saying um, we need to respond to climate change. and they don't use the language of climate change, but I think that the way that they imagine um, these sort of radical politics of agrarian life as embedded in a response to the way to live with ecological change is um, really important for us to consider as we think about what um, agrarian climate justice can look like. I had a question about them and, their, yeah. and, their, and what they're doing because essentially it seemed to me from your book that what they're doing is they're reclaiming common lands, right? And these are landless people who never had land in the past or um, and maybe used to be sharecroppers, so they would have 
they'd be they'd be cropping other people's lands and getting some grain from that half the grain maybe or yeah. so so but essentially they didn't have land of their own so what they were doing now is when the shrimp cultivation has taken over the, these villages they're trying to reclaim bits of land where they can start farming and have some kind of food security of their own but what they weren't doing was 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 asking for land distribution hmm. redistribution so they weren't like actually challenging the old feudal relations which might have existed in the past or they weren't challenging capital itself you know like the, the whole shrimp industry or when they try to do that when they challenge that you get you know you, you get you basically they're killed the martyr comes from you know from that from from challenging capital so it's really interesting to hear more about their strategy and how far it can go and whether they've had concerted discussions about actually taking on the big guys and the big questions of land redistribution and challenging capital itself yeah yeah the, i mean so interesting for you in particular to be um pointing that out and i think that it's I think that it's true. Um, I think that there is, um, I understand that there is sort of a longer history in the region of these, um, of Marxist and Maoist sort of revolutionary action um, that sort of shared prior to partition, shared some um, political, sort of inspiration and mobilization across the border into West Bengal. Um, I think that um, that has mostly been um, uh, sort of latent since, um, since at least 1971, which is when Bangladesh got its independence. Um, I mean, the, you know, sitting in people's homes, a lot of the times they will have um, posters of like Marx and Che Guevara and um, they aspire to a more radical politics, but they're up against a lot mm -hmm. in sort of pursuing that radical politics. And I think also that like, um, agrarian class relations in Bangladesh are so overdetermined by um, interventions from the development industry in a way that um, you don't see as much on the other side of the border in India. Um, because, you know, like, for example, I mean, if you could struggle against a wealthy landholder and mobilize collectively to regain access to land or water resources. Um, in the past, the sort of additional obstacle of that person being um, like empowered and propped up economically by this development aid, um, it makes for a really kind of insurmountable um, obstacle. Although actually I won't say insurmountable because um, they are finding ways to do that. So um, I, I, I think I have a couple more pictures. Yeah, so like this is another um, community where um, people had fully transitioned to shrimp and they have been able to mobilize collectively. And this is interesting because it's actually, um, this is Holder 29, which is the sort of third 
community um, island. They, these landless laborers who had been largely displaced by shrimp, um, they mobilized along with some kind of um, middle peasantry landholders and collectively they organized against the sort of um, urban elites who had come to start these shrimp ponds. This is from 2012. They were able to stop shrimp farming in their area and to transition back to rice only through this sort of cross-class collective mobilization. And so this is from like the same spot in 2014. Um, it took about seven or eight years for them to be able to regain the fertility mm -hmm. of their land. Um, I think that it's hopeful in terms of um, thinking about um, the sort of absolute depeasantization that we see in some of the areas that are most devastated, especially because um, these agrarian laborers who you know were landless and had left were all able to return and start working again in agriculture in the village. Um, but they 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 have to um, they have a rotation of people who guard the sluice gates at night with clubs to prevent outsiders from mm -hmm. coming and um, flooding their land again. Mm -hmm. So the struggle is like mm -hmm. a very day-to-day -day struggle for survival and for continuing to produce mm -hmm. in this way. And I think that um, a sort of a broader struggle against capitalism is... Um, for the time being, my sense is that they believe it is beyond them. Mm, 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 mm. Is this is this a moment when we can invite mm. Nikhil to come in, perhaps to um, both comment on the book, but also pick up on some of the wonderful discussion that we've just had between Kasha and Alpa. Nikhil. Uh, thanks, uh, and thanks so much, Kasha. This is such a terrific book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. And this conversation already has animated a, a few thoughts um, for thinking and and, and take further. Um, I'm just going to touch on a couple of conceptual um, excitements uh, or generativity I found in my reading of the book, uh, and then ask maybe a couple of questions as well. I won't, I won't summarize um, the book um, here. Um, so um, amidst um, news reports, um, academic work, um, the work of environmentalists urging that we take the climate emergency seriously, that it calls for systemic action. Um, the promises of action are everywhere, right? Um, but what kind of action? Um, in the US, where I normally work, um, there is um, a lot of work going on with the Green New Deal. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act promises a transition to fossil-free uh, energies, at least to the extent of 50% or so in the next 10 years. In Mumbai and in Indian cities where I also work, there are city climate action plans being currently drafted. And, and Kasha's work here has described how in Bangladesh, um, development agencies are falling um, in front of each other to put in place um, climate adaptation programs of the sort, um, such, such as shrimp or agriculture um, in place to, to, to respond to or adapt to climate change. Now, 
climate, if climate change is, and talk of climate change is uh, everywhere, the book dwells in how the futures of climate change are being anticipated, experimented with, and made. Um, who is dispossessed? How, is, how are people dispossessed? Um, how is dispossession being enacted amidst concerns for the climate crisis? Again and again, the book points out the development agents, let's call them, keep talking about how there'll be winners and losers, right? And, and the book is very careful at attending to how the winners and losers are projected, imagined, and justified um, with these developmental interventions. Um, while there's, there's been some work, um, some books out now on planning, uh, ethnographies of planning climate action, um, this is the first uh, and, and stellar political ecology of climate adaptation um, that I have read, um, and I congratulate you. It's such a fantastic book. Congratulations. Um, the book centers on the dystopias and catastrophes that you might uh, be able to predict from the title um, of climate adaptation programs in Bangladesh, their social life of what doing adaptation does to think with the work of Jim Ferguson, uh, who was talking about what doing development does. Um, this book is, is asking what doing adaptation does um, to and with um, um, communities, um, agrarian communities in Bangladesh. Um, in his work, The Nutmeg's Curse, Amitav Ghosh has made some important observations about the histories of, dystopia, of, of dystopic imaginaries. Um, these are primarily um, dystopic imaginaries mobilized by white men who long for release from an earth that has fallen um, by colonialists of various stripes um, that seek to lift up from dystopia, perhaps their ilk um, to, to, to live on again, um, perhaps on a different continent, perhaps on a different planet. In Kasha's book, dystopias are powerful visions of the future made by powerful actors. Unsurprisingly then, dystopias also privilege powerful actors. And the book pays a lot of attention to how these dystopic imaginaries are inhabited um, by people living at the edges of land and water in Bangladesh. Um, now, what's really interesting and kind of, I don't know, it's tragic as well, um, about um, this possession that is affected by dystopias. On one hand, all the work on climate change um, and, and you know, thinking of Bangladesh's ground zero for climate change is moved by the need to help um, or the will to help those that will, whose homes will be inundated by those waters that Kasha showed on that projection in the first slide. Um, but she shows how climate adaptation initiatives subsequently also valorize and normalize um, dispossession um, through the kinds of initiatives that are being proposed, right? So the shrimp aquaculture programs, for example, that she talks about are seen by design or, or, or by design are intended to dispossess people so that they can be freed to go and work in, in nearby cities, right? So this is a, a great transformation um, in some ways writ a new, um, an old process, a colonial process of enclosures writ, writ over again. Um, so shrimp aquaculture um, not only drives people away from farming, migration is being presented by experts as a, as a solution to, to climate crises in, in, in Bangladesh. The second point I wanted to, to flag is an extremely generative work of uncertainty. So much of climate science is, is predicated on 
not only what can be known, but what cannot be known. And Kasha describes the ways in which uncertainty is wielded, not just by scientists. We don't know where land or sea will come or go, but also by development practitioners to disclaim responsibility from the effects of their work, whether that's scientific work or it's development work, um, because we can't really know we're doing our best, right? So I think the way in which Kasha attends to the politics of uncertainty is really generative for those of us um, thinking about climate futures um, wherever we, we work. Um, science here is um, not only um, shapes the landscape in terms of recommending interventions, it's also shaped by the landscape. For example, what or when is waterlogging um, is, is, a, is, a, is a topic of tremendous contention in and among scientific communities. But the vagueness of the concept of what waterlogging, Kasha shows, um, allow for actions um, uh, in what she calls the climate regime to, to proceed. Taken together, um, Kasha argues that thinking about global phenomena like climate change in places, any places, but places like Khulna, for example, without attending to their political and social histories um, have accentuated the, the, the marginalization of communities living in those places. And I think this is a really important point because as we see climate change everywhere, um, facing like these deep and longstanding histories um, in some ways repeats or recapitulates the problems um, of, of, of these areas in, in, in a much longer time frame. Um, and so here, uh, by overlooking the conditions of Kulna's uh, conditions of production, for example, um, climate um, development practitioners um, only recapitulate the, the problems of development um, that had been ongoing till 1980, but starting in the colonial period as, as Kaskasha describes. Um, so here, I think I wanted to also like, I was really like taken by um, Alpa's provocative thinking about um, climate adaptation programs like shrimp um, aquaculture in the genealogy of development programs, right? And in many places, um, shrimp aquaculture is proposed as a development program. Um, not the green revolution, but the blue revolution, right? An intensification of fisheries and fishery export markets um, to free uh, and produce um, to produce foreign exchange uh, for, for national economies. So it's a very developmentalist kind of project, uh, shrimp aquaculture, now read through and produced through the language, justified through the languages of climate adaptation. And so here I was, as I was thinking, um, with with uh, with the conversation earlier around development, um, what does the positing of shrimp aquaculture as climate change adaptation allow that development discourses did not allow? Right, that was just a question I had that I would love to hear your your thinking about um, because they were being justified as well um, in the in the languages of development um, in other places, if not in if not in in, in Bangladesh. Um, the second question um, I had, um, and, and you know, like thinking uh, also with with um, the journalist uh, B. Sainath, who um, an Indian journalist who wrote this book, "Everybody Loves a Good Drought." Here, everybody loves a good flood, right? But the everybody is not really everybody, but those that are powerful, right? Because they give give you ways and means of intervening in in places and landscapes and histories. Um, is to think about how this flood, the flood of climate change work, might be meaningful at all to Kulna's otherwise agrarian residents, right? 
um, Kasha talks uh, in some detail, particularly the end of the book, about the ways in which there's a, a large push, and, and we've talked about this as well, um, for um, different kinds of agrarian practices to be, to be um, mobilized by those that are seeking to like claim and collectively farm land in the wake of shrimp aquaculture. Um, but if climate change, climate adaptation programs, climate emergencies um, are not meaningful um, concepts or meaningful terms for them to engage, what do we do with the terms themselves, right? Um, what is at stake in, in thinking that that's really about climate? Um, and this is a question I had thinking about um, the, the, the purchase of climate, climate um, change programs, climate change action in places where this is not, maybe not yet an emic category of, of, of thinking and doing. And I, I ask this really for, for personal reasons because of the way of places that, that I work where people that I'm working with see climate change as just one more imposition of develop, like um, Western knowledge production machines to control locals, well, to control geographies and histories that have long been controlled by um, places like this, places like the work, place I work in in the University of Pennsylvania um, to do the next hot thing, right, in a, in a faraway place. And the, the third question I had was on the, on the cast of refusal, right? The book is marvelous in showing how dystopias are generative, right? Um, and it shows how dystopias and, and talk of dystopias produce uh, a predictable cast of, of winners and losers. Um, and I'm thinking here with recent work on dystopias that show that this is not just a case with neoliberal development agendas, which can and should and are easily critiqued, but also progressive ones. Um, and I'm thinking of the work of Savannah Shange here and to, to paraphrase uh, Savannah Shange's reading of Christina Sharp's work, the question for theory is how to live in the wake of slavery, or we can say development, um, in slavery or development's afterlives, the afterlife of property. How in short inhabit, the rupture, inhabit and rupture this episteme with their and with our noble lives, end quote. Shange concludes her book by drawing attention to the practices of black refusal willful forms of defiance that not only reject the political, but also challenge the legitimacy of state and the state and its effects. And so here I wanted to ask um, if you found refusal in the aspirations and experiments of Kolna's farmers, either for farming, refusal for farming, but also refusal for aquaculture. Um, how did this refusal map along gender or caste lines? And is a longing and return for rice cultivation a form of state refusal or is it something else? Um, so with that, I'll stop for now. Thanks so much, I really enjoyed the book and I'm really looking forward to teaching this in my classes. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you so much. I'll turn back to Vikasha, take a few minutes to engage with some of Nikhil's points, and then we'll open it to discussion. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Nikhil. Um, 
this is so much for me to think about both sort of about the book and my ongoing work. Um, I, yeah, this is so generous and generative. Thank you. Um, I think, yeah, I guess just, well, yeah, to start at the top, the, this question about what um, shrimp as climate change adaptation allows us to do that development discourse or allows development agencies to do that prior development discourses um, weren't able to do. This is something actually that was addressed quite directly by a lot of um, practitioners, sort of adaptation practitioners who I talked to in Bangladesh um, would say about, you know, what, what we're able to do now in the face of climate change. And I think that um, the idea of inevitable crisis allows for what one, um, like a, this guy, he was, he worked for a British aid agency and he was on his way out. So he was like more frank than most. And he said, yeah, you know, it's like no regrets because whatever we do, it's going underwater anyway. And so we can do whatever we want. And um, he said that, um, you know, he was like, in my whole career, I've always understood that development was this practice of um, moving people out of agriculture into cities, that that's what development was supposed to look like. And um, before these new logics of climate change adaptation, um, we had to essentially, he said, like respect people's rights to stay where they lived if they wanted to. But now we don't have to respect that anymore because um, these people are going to be displaced no matter what. And so, um, you know, we can pursue these sort of new visions that really do what we always wanted to do, but in more intensive ways. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is, uh, that, that was a sentiment that was shared sort of less explicitly um, by a lot, of, a lot of the practitioners I talked to. And that I think um, suggests we need to be a lot more concerned about climate change adaptation than um, we needed to be about development interventions in the past. Um, this is a really challenging question about like what we do with concepts and terms related to climate change if they aren't meaningful to people that we're working with. Um, because I mean, yeah, the the um, a lot of the activists, like friends, sort of environmentalists who I work with in in DACA, especially when I've asked them about climate change, they do really reject it. And they say, that's not what we're up against here and we don't really want to engage with it. And um, I think that, so yeah, two things. One is um, I want to continue encouraging them to engage with, um, with these concepts, not least because like, there's so much money that's gonna come into Bangladesh and elsewhere um, to address climate change. And so if it is sort of given up to um, development practitioners and to these kinds of visions, um, then, uh, you know, and, and not engaged with that, um, 
that, you know, what you call the politics of refusal is not going to be possible. And um, so, so I, so I have encouraged them and I have tried to continue asking them to, to think about like, at least what the money coming in means and um, how they can engage with these responses to climate change. Um, and then secondly, I guess I, I personally feel that as a scholar, I have the opportunity to draw these connections in ways that maybe activists don't necessarily need to. So, um, you know, like Nidra Corey asked me to go and look at shrimp aquaculture and I did that. And then I was able to see by looking at multiple scales, um, which is, uh, you know, the, the privilege of being, a, you know, an ethnographer, um, I was able to see how these things were linked. And, um, you know, I wanna continue engaging with them in those conversations so that they can sort of claim these terms at some point um, for themselves. But also I think that um, scholars who are engaged with local politics have the opportunity to say, like, we can keep learning from you about the politics that you are grappling with and you don't necessarily need to speak this other language if we are able to understand um, like how this is playing out across space. So um, yeah, that's, some, that, that, that's sort of something that I'm sort of newly um, thinking with. Um, yeah, this question about the, the politics of black refusal I think is really, important and exciting and is just a very new um a very new thing for me to be thinking with and like sort of in the aftermath of publishing this book i'm feeling very inspired by some of this work in black ecologies that grapples with the same kinds of questions and uh, um i'm yeah i'm just going to say that i that i am enjoying reading it instead of like get, putting my own two cents into it <laughs> yeah but thank you for that Great. Well, this is a, a good moment for us to transition to maybe opening up the floor for, for questions. So thank you so much, both Alpa and Nikhil, for your comments and the discussion, and Takasha as well for engaging so deeply and thoughtfully with the, the commentaries and the questions. So we'll now open the floor to questions from, from all of you. And if you can raise your hand, I'll, I'll try to select people more or less in, in rounds. So please try to keep your questions short so that we can engage with as many questions as possible. And if you don't mind stating your name um, as well, that would be that would be great. So we'll start here um, in the front. Hegemonic narratives that um, dominate how we discuss development and climate change work. And I work alongside, unfortunately, a lot of World Bank officials. Uh, so this is something that we constantly are trying to push back against. So this is really, really valuable. And I'm very excited to read your book. Um, I guess it brought to me a question that uh, we're actually struggling a lot with when we go to governments and we go to development practitioners. Um, and what I kind of wanted to emphasize was, and it, I'm, I might have misunderstood this from your work, was that it feels like you're talking about this idea that shrimp farms have somehow brought a new dystopia that didn't exist before. And often we're arguing that these dystopias existed long before the first shrimps arrived because any kind of mono agriculture or plantation is destructive and a huge threat to biodiversity and natural assets and wealth in any area. 
And so if we go back to say rice, um, we're talking about increased nitrogen emissions, um, deteriorating soil quality, water quality, indentured labor practices. And this is demonstrated in regions like Punjab and places like Assam where we can see this type of large scale mono, mono agriculture practices that are present and how it's deteriorated farmer mental health led them to debt cycles. So the question is, what are the alternative futures that we do want to advocate for? What is the solution that we can put forward that's not a shrimp, that's not the same type of kind of like rice-led, um, financialized, commercialized spaces or agroforestry solutions that governments are insisting on pushing right now? Thanks. Great, thank you. Um, why don't we, Kasha, do you wanna to respond to that one directly and then we'll take another, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that's an excellent question. Thank you so much for that. I'm looking forward to learning more about your work as well. Um, uh, yeah, I think that it's absolutely the case that shrimp is part of a much longer pattern um, of dispossession through various kinds of development practices. So what I call the adaptation regime is essentially a new development regime um, that builds on these politics that have been problematic for a long time. Um, and like certainly ecologically, sort of physically, materially, you know, I showed this, this polder system that is actually um, pushing the land underwater. It is not clear what the alternatives are to that. And um, you know, that's something I spent a lot of time trying to unravel also. Um, I, my, the, and, and did not find any really satisfying solutions to that. What I did find was that this idea of like, what is it that we want to advocate for? What kinds of alternative futures might be possible? Um, is that there are um, groups in every community that are already imagining and pursuing alternative futures. And um, it's not like my job sitting here in the Shaw library to imagine what those are and to promote them. So Nidra Quarry, like I said, um, has all sorts of ideas about, um, you know, ways of claiming uh, access to lands, more equitable agrarian production relations, more equitable gender relations, all of these things. And um, I think that if we could ask development agencies to get out of their way a little bit, they might be a little more successful. And uh, additionally, I'd say that um, this is something I, I talk about a little bit more in the book that I that I didn't talk about much today. But in terms of the um, strategies for addressing the physical, um, the sort of crisis of the physical landscape, um, there are all sorts of Bangladeshi engineers who understand a lot more than foreign engineers and scientists do about um the sort of natural ecology of the delta the way that the sediments flow and things like that um who are not empowered to do that research themselves so they are usually um they they work a lot and they're hired basically as like research assistants for a lot of like major british research uh, consortia and um if there was more space for them to like pursue these questions themselves, I think that we would be in a much better place to figure out how to mitigate the, the um, risks that the region is facing. So in general, I guess my response is like, 
I think that people in Bangladesh are the best people to ask this question to um, more than, than I feel that I'm equipped to answer it. Let's take another question from, yeah, in the back. Hello, I'm Andrea Pia from Anthropology. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. I think this is a really fantastic book. I haven't read it, but I guess I need to read it now. Um, and I, I will do so. I wanted to bring you back to an initial point that you made about this, uh, this decelerationist idea that we need to slow down the narrative of climate apocalypse in order to bring into view the, the alternatives by, by the sideline on the margin which I think is a very healthy Walter Benjaminian argument to make, and I think I do take it. But I've been, I've been recently uh, researching uh, Fridays for the Futures movement, and I was at a climate social camp in Turin over the summer. It was really interesting. It was very, everybody was very young, and I felt completely out of place. But there were these uh, delegates from MAPA communities, so the most affected people in areas uh, speaking there, uh, mostly from Latin America. And they made the argument, the opposite argument, that actually the only weapon that they have is this idea of urgency. And the urgency of the climate apocalypse is what makes them visible to the global north. So I wonder what, uh, I would like to hear what you think of this, mm -hmm. but I also would like to hear um, about the possibility that an argument for deceleration can actually be used against the very people you write about in the book, because it can be used to argue that the you know, landless peasants can actually should be left to their own devices, figuring out how to deal with uh, climate change, which was in fact an argument very much in vogue in the international development of, of a prior mitigation craze, right? The idea that at, at the margin of capitalist development, people should be just left and abandoned with no state or development intervention. Uh, at all. So, two questions in one. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Should we take that or, yeah, why don't you respond to that one and then, oh, I see another hand in the back. So, why don't we collect a couple if that's okay? Sounds good. Okay. We'll take those two more right next to each other. Um, hi, Professor. So, um, it's really good to be seeing you here, not in a, in a class context, not, not listening to your lecture, but listening to you know, what you've written in your book. You and I mean, when I was looking at the pictures, it felt very strange to be thousands of mile, miles away from home and looking at my own country being presented here and from someone who is, has been so intensely involved in working um, on issues, climate issues in, in Bangladesh. So um, my question would probably uh, sound perhaps a little pessimistic, but I'd, I'd still want to ask anyway. So, you know, you've done a lot of work in the micro level, you've seen the micro level reality of these people, you know, the loss of livelihoods, uh, their struggle against something that are perhaps they're not even responsible for. Um, what I mean, we have one uh, big conference coming up next next month. That is basically I what I personally feel is that uh, uh, people, uh, it, a major proportion of which involves empty rhetorics, empty promises being made year after year. So um, we have uh, COP26 saw a global goal on adaptation and COP27 is probably going to be pushing that forward. So how do you connect the realities, the ground level realities of these people to, you know, 
policies or treaties or promises that are made in those closed rooms during the negotiations at COP. And do you feel that there's a, there's a major disconnect between what is being said by people in power and people who have the authority to say and those who are basically living the reality at the grassroots level? So I hope my questions fr framed what I want to say. Thank you. Great. So we'll take one more, just pass the microphone to your right. <laughs> Uh, is this on? Yeah. Yep. Hi, um, I'm Majid Akhtar from King's. Thanks, Kasha, for the book, and thank you, everyone, for, your, for the conversation. Uh, I have two uh, quick questions. The first one is uh, the reference of Bangladesh as a model or as ground zero for climate change and as kind of how that's taken by the development community as that. And I kind of, I guess my question is, how do you take it? Do you take it as a model for social theory, as productive of theory, or... Is it a case study? Is it a frontier? Like how, this is something that all social scientists that are place-based or place-sensitive have to kind of negotiate this relationship. So just wondering how you take it and as you taking it as generative of theory, is that dependent on the development community also seeing it as, is it kind of a counter move or something more than that? And then the second one would be, um, I mean, looking elsewhere from, I guess, developing world or poor world or South Asia, it might be Bangladesh. There is this climate, like it's drowning imaginary, but there's also another one as in developmental success, manufacturing powerhouse and, you know, grassroots development and relatively successful land reform. And so do you see these as completely separate by different imaginaries, by different people, or do they come together? You mentioned migration or... Um, but yeah, maybe one is economists and one is more environmental people. So yeah, just wondering how these two very different imaginaries, how you see them relating to each other. Okay, well, we'll give Kasha a chance to respond to those and then we'll open it up for another round of questions. There's a lot there on the table to work with, so. Yeah, so much. Um, such excellent questions. Thank you for all of them. Um, I'll do my best. So. Yeah, I very much understand this idea of um, the rhetorics of urgency of climate ap apocalypse. Um, I think that it is very, very, very urgent that um, we rapidly mitigate fossil fuel um, extraction and use. Um, I think that it is a shame that the political movements who are working to pursue that feel that they need to do so like on the backs of Bangladeshi villagers who you know, are going underwater. I think when I read these sort of um, you know, political things that say like, it's urgent that we do this now because Bangladeshis are going underwater. Like, Bang I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure you, most of you have seen this. Bangladesh is often used as sort of the example of, you know, why we need to um, address climate change. And there's this um, really brilliant geographer, Carol Farbatko, who wrote this piece about what she calls wishful sinking about um, the people of Tuvalu who she says, you know, Tuvalu is going underwater and it is part of this sort of global imaginary of climate apocalypse. And Tuvalu only becomes um, important to these politics once it goes underwater. And I think that's also very much true about Bangladesh that 
um, that Bangladesh is only interesting or important to these political imaginaries um, once it's threatened. And so um, there's no space for imaginaries of, you know, groups like Nijar Akwari um, that suggest that we might inhabit a world outside of that apocalypse. And um, so that's what I think is wrong with, with that. Although I completely am sympathetic to the idea that, um, you know, that the, the burning of fossil fuels is one of the greatest political challenges of our time. Um, yeah, this, th thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And thank you for your question about the sort of empty rhetoric of the cops. Um, I, I agree that, um, that much of what we're seeing coming out of climate negotiations is largely empty rhetoric because it's not being acted on. However, um, the best case scenario of that current climate regime is more of what we've seen here. Because um, you know, if, if justice at that global scale um, is going to be pursued on the terms that it's currently being sought, then just more money will go into these kinds of adaptation projects that I've just talked about. And that, you know, in, as I've sort of just explained is no kind of justice. So I think that in general, um, any project of pursuing climate justice that relies on um, negotiations between states is insufficient. And um, I'm, I guess, less pessimistic about it because that's not where I find my hope. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I totally understand where your pessimism is coming from. And I think that you might also find some hope if you um, look to these political movements that exist within Bangladesh. Um, Oh, Majad, these questions are so big and good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, this idea of Bangladesh as a, a model or frontier, I think that I, um, I do, um, I think that it's very much worth interrogating the idea that development agencies have um, promoted that Bangladesh is sort of a model or a frontier of crisis and of development. I think for that reason, um, it is um, also a very important site for understanding um, the kinds of struggles that will be confronted in the future in the face of climate change. And I think that, um, yeah, I do, I, 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 think, I think exactly as you've said, in some ways, the idea of Bangladesh as a model of these politics is reliant on it being framed as a model of development practice. Um, which leads into an answer to your second question, um, which I think is fascinating about the sort of, yeah, a lot of sort of commentators on Bangladesh have called this the Bangladesh paradox, that it is like considered a model of crisis and also a model of development success. And I think that 
the ways in which it has been, been considered to be a model of success are productive of the ways in which it is a model of crisis in the ways that I've just discussed. So for example, um, you know, the, the idea of Bangladesh as this like incredible model of success with microfinance um, has been proven to also make it a frontier of like extreme kinds of exploitation that happen through, um, and this is this has a much longer history. So like, you know, uh, in the in the 70s and 80s, when development agencies were experimenting with family planning interventions, there were just massive amounts of money, like absolutely dwarfing the amount of money that was being spent across the border in India on experimental forms of like sterilization through tubal um, tubal litigation and things like that. And so like the ways that Bangladesh as a model has been this, made it this site for um, experimentation as a kind of laboratory for development practice has also made it, um, ha has caused a lot of uh, harm. And um, so I don't see those as unrelated to each other. I see them as linked. Great. I'm conscious of time, but I want to take um, one or two more questions. And I saw a hand here in front and then one just right behind. So sorry um, for those of you who still have questions, but we will have a reception. So let's just take those those last two. And if you could make them relatively brief, that would be great. And then Kasha can can respond. Thanks. For sure. Thank you so much, Kasha. This was so fascinating and I learned a lot. Um, the question for you is, and you kind of, a lot of what you've said addresses this in a sense, but how you see these sort of local-led alternatives um, interacting and situated within a broader context of capitalism and growth. Right, thank you. And then the last question just right here. Hi, uh, thank you so much. Um, so I guess I just wanted to ask really quick if you did a deep dive into sort of how some of these development agencies are funded. Like, are they funded by various state actors? And if so, do you see any implications there in regards to like the US-China relationship and competition going on? And alternatively, which is what I'm a little bit more interested in is sometimes, or I should say more frequently, we're seeing, especially in a lot of the states within the African continent, a lot of these development agencies are being funded by multinational corporations and private non-state actor uh, entities. I'm wondering if you see any long-term implications there and also if you see that funding as somehow different in its impact compared to state funding or coming from places like the IMF or more like traditional uh, forms of financing. Okay, thank you, Kasha. Over to you. Um, yeah, two really good questions. Um, thank you for these. So um, the question about the where these sort of alternatives are situated in the context of capitalism, I guess, is also a question that Alba <laughs> has asked me. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I mean, like they're up against it. So <laughs> I um, I don't. Um, capitalism is a really powerful force and I think that it is like equally um, powerful and inspiring to see that there are 
groups of the poorest people in the world who are fighting against it and sometimes sometimes succeeding like in the in this picture and so um you know they're not like um they're they're not um undermining capitalism writ large through these sort of small um, work, you know, and sort of imaginaries that they're building. But I think that they are building some of the pieces for it. So, you know, there are like wars of position and wars of maneuver and this is fits somewhere in there. Um, uh, I, yeah, the, I could, this is such a big question about where the funding comes from and whether it has different impacts. Absolutely, um, uh, most of the money for the projects that I'm looking at here comes from um, aid agencies and not from multinational corporations. And I do think that the impacts would be quite different. And in Bangladesh included, um, like for example, the you asked about the Chinese government. The Chinese government has recently decided to um, put money into building like a very large embankment around an island in the middle of the Bay of Bengal where the Bangladeshi state will put Rohingya refugees. And that's a kind of project that like the World Bank would never touch because it's so violent and terrible. <laughs> And so I think certainly different kinds of actors, um, you know, invest in th this project in different ways. Although I think that also um, it needs to be seen collectively as part of a common project um, that is sort of coming from different places, but also pursuing a similar kind of future. So. Um, yeah, but I think also that a lot more work could be done on those capital flows and, um, I'd love to see work on that. So thank you for that. Great. Well, it's been a great pleasure hosting this event and I just want to thank Kasha for this truly exceptional work of scholarship. Thank, uh, Nikhil and Alpa for really thought provoking and generous commentary on the book and discussion as well. And thank all of you for, for being here full house. Um, and so celebrating with me um, Kasha's book. So big round of applause for the book and for our discussants. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.